Hello, welcome to episode 12 of PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope, where we speak with pathologists about their pursuits and interests outside of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah J. You can find me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. We're very lucky to have Dr. Evelyn Lockhart on the show today. Dr. Lockhart is a pathologist and transfusion medicine attending who has nurtured her creative talents and is finishing a master's in medical illustration. You can find her at her website, Evelyn Lockhart, that's E-V-E-L-Y-N-L-O-C-K-H-A-R-T dot com. Welcome, Dr. Lockhart. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. The two of us actually go way back. We've known each other since I was just a little baby resident at Duke University, (laughs) and you were a superstar transfusion medicine attending. I remember coming on transfusion, and I had no idea of what happened in the blood bank. I had given blood, but that was about it. And I remember being struck by your passion for medical education, your enthusiasm about transfusion, your love of platelets, a part of the blood that I had never really given much thought about. So I always was very inspired by your enthusiasm for medical education. Thank you. And I want to touch on transfusion and medical education and how I think for a lot of pathologists, a lot of physicians that wind up pursuing transfusion, not just pathologists, you know, hematologists, anesthesiologists wind up getting board certified in transfusion. And because it's such an area that I think most practitioners are not educated in hardly at all. And, and certainly there's data to support this, the minimum amount of education that they get, formal education in med school residency, I think naturally just means if, if you're into transfusion, you're, you have to have, to one degree or another, a, a passion for education and doing it. I remember one of the cool things that I got to experience is I have EM of my own platelets because <laughs> I got, you know, I got, I got roped into being the positive mm-hmm. control for some platelet EM studies. Your, your platelets were gorgeous. Fantastic granules. Oh, oh the, the best granules. The best, the best granules. I mean, how many people, even pathologists can say that they have pictorial evidence of the high quality of their platelets? I mean, <laughs> so yeah, I, where I am now in illustration, the thing that is striking to me about pathologists is just uniformly a visual crew, right? I mean, these are particularly those in anatomic pathology. The communication through visuals, I think, is something they intuitively grasp more than I think a lot of other physicians, other professionals, because they appreciate the power of the visual in, in their lives. We never realized as academic pathologists that we were signing up to be graphic designers. I certainly never would have given yeah. myself that job title. Anytime I opened up PowerPoint, I was being a graphic designer. And I recognized that I enjoyed trying to teach with visuals, time trying to finesse in my visual communication through these tools. And I just knew that I wasn't up for the job. I was doing it, but it was completely uneducated. I wasn't convinced I was doing it effectively. So all these things converging helped me appreciate the power of visual communication and recognize how I wasn't doing it up to where I wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something, like you say, it's not necessarily, we don't necessarily go into pathology or go into academic medicine saying, hey, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot of communicating, but you learn elements of it, like how to talk to patients, how to write a paper. And I think the challenge is that because we're not taught these skills intentionally, we end up kind of picking them up along the way, doing some see one, do one, teach one kind of things. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've become painfully, humbly aware of my own Dunning-Kruger. 
effect yes. in, yeah. in that regard. I'm looking back at what before I thought was pretty darn good graphic design in in combining words and text in some of my visual communication pieces before presentations and the like. And and now having taken taken time, I didn't really understand how to present hierarchy of information and other elements like this. So it's it's been it's been humbling, really, but I'm glad I, I did it. Tell me a little bit about that decision. You had been in New Mexico, you'd been working as a transfusion medicine attending, teaching residents, doing all the wonderful things you do. Right. I had been, before I did this whole endeavor, I was a medical director of transfusion at University of New Mexico Hospital. I was division chief of clinical pathology, had just recently taken on that role. And I was working, I, I also had a secondary appointment in obstetrics and gynecology because I've been working with the OB group so closely regarding patient blood management in obstetric hemorrhage, working on protocols to improve response time, blood delivery, laboratory testing, lab utilization, blood utilization. And this was also part of the work that we were doing with the New Mexico Perinatal Collaborative in trying to roll out obstetric hemorrhage patient safety bundles to the New Mexican uh, obstetric community to try and, as best as possible, collectively improve our um, maternal outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So you had uh, just a little bit on your plate, you know, and, and so tell me about the decision to shift your focus from that to pursuing that program in medical illustration. What was that decision process like? Oh, what was it? It was, it was challenging. I mean, the, the thing that this was a slow burn decision. I think it was, it was around the time that I was transitioning from, from Duke to UNM. And I had really started looking at protocols and what can we do for our visual communications, little manuals, packets, posters, what can we do to help with just-in-time information delivery with some of these obstetric hemorrhage protocols. And I was, as I was digging into illustration, all of a sudden I came across these programs. There are four programs in North America that offer master's degrees in medical and scientific illustration. And I was like, oh, well, isn't that interesting? I never even realized it was a, it was that level. I, that was how ignorant I was in 2014. I didn't even know that this level of training existed. And I would just come back like every six months or so, like I'd come back, I'd kind of look through those websites. I'm like, isn't that interesting that people did that? Fascinating. Yeah. And I joked with my husband, I said, you know, in some parallel universe, that would have been a good profession for me. <laughs> And we're like, ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) And it just kept burning, burning, burning. And finally, uh, it was towards the end of 2016. I just recognized at that point how much time I had been spending thinking about this. And I said, I think I would like to explore whether I could even try this or not. And I had a heart to heart with my husband. He's like, go for it. And I approached my chair. Doug Clark at the time, who was remarkably supportive. And I said, if, if I want to get serious about this, I have to, I don't know, actually practice. <laughs> I have to get some skills. I didn't have a portfolio. I didn't have a mm-hmm. sketchbook. I didn't have anything I could show and everything. I had had one drawing class back in high school. <laughs> the only digital art tool I'd ever used was PowerPoint. So I had a lot of work to do. I went part-time every other week, you know, 
week one, I'd be in the hospital. Week two, I'd be at home trying to self-educate in art. Uh, six months later, I had a portfolio. I submitted it to the wonderful University of Toronto Biomedical Communication Program. I got an interview. I got it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Wow. Wow. And so really, to build your portfolio, you went online? This experience has been incredible for me in a lot of ways as an educator in recognizing how much is out there with online learning, how much can be accomplished through online learning. My being a very motivated student was part of this too. But there are wonderful resources out there that can help guide students through art fundamentals. The thing that is a major downside though, the importance of community in that social circle. And I certainly think for endeavors like visual arts, it's really important to have that level of feedback. And I didn't really have that because I was just working in a vacuum. I think that feedback element is so important in these days. We're all doing so much more virtually. We're doing so much more learning virtually. A lot of it is actually very effective. We have great tools. We can communicate visually through these video conferences and we can communicate, certainly in pathology, we do virtual signouts. We're able to drive the scope, show the findings to our residents. But I think that as you move into teaching digitally in settings where it's not one-on-one, you lose potentially that feedback element. And I think with that, like you say, without that feedback element, it's a little hard to tell, are you doing it right? Are there things that yeah. could be improved? And so you get the, the more passive elements of learning, but you don't necessarily have the interactivity, which I think as humans helps us grow and learn and get better. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, it's been eye-opening for me in, in a couple of ways. Number one, just the potential and the sheer volume of it. And I'm kind of in some ways jealous, in some ways grateful, reflecting on my med school education, just seeing all the resources out there for med school, for residency, helping to shore up the live and in-person education too. Of course, what I experienced as someone trying to teach myself art is I think what our learners are experiencing, which is being overwhelmed. There's Mm -hmm. so much stuff that it becomes very difficult to, I mean, I consider myself lucky in that I felt like I was a good judge of the quality of education I was, I was getting from some of these sources. You know, I could see a little bit and be like, yeah, no, 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 no. You're, mm-hmm. thank you, but next. But it did take me a while to go through and curate that kind of curriculum for myself. And that took time and that took patience. And again, for our learners who don't have that time, you know, they're under the pressure of med school. They're under the pressure of, you know, all the demands of residency. It's tempting to go down that rabbit hole and see if you could find that site that's going to make everything better and easier. But it's something that I think, you know, looking at myself moving forward, what I'd like to do is, you know, be going through all all the online options for transfusion and hemostasis and try and help our learners out with doing some pre-curating for them. This element of curation, I think, is so important and all the knowledge more or less is kind of out there, right, on the internet. And there's just every article in the world, every resource in the world, every textbook in the world, all of that is there and accessible, at least certainly from our very privileged perspective of having internet where the two of us are sitting, we have access to all these resources. But 
our learners, like you say, don't have all the time in the world to sort through all of this. So even as the internet has really kind of flattened the hierarchy of where you can get your knowledge from, the lack of curation still makes it overwhelming. And I think that as educators, part of our role is, is not necessarily to always be the ones to create the knowledge ourselves. You know, we write papers and we write textbooks, but to take all that knowledge out there and try to present it in a logical fashion, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, to tell a story about it, if you will. One of the things I often do with my residents when we're signing out is I'll tell a story about the tumor and the person that it came from and try to fit the pieces together because I do think it's really, really hard for us as humans to just take data and make it something that we can remember. But if someone tells us a story about the data, that's how we remember information. It's telling the story. That's why we're doing these types of stories with pathologists, because I I think that that's how we as humans really begin to process and understand information. The power of narrative. I, yeah, absolutely. Narrative storytelling. It's one of the things that I am grateful to the Toronto BMC program for many, many things. The amount of education I've gotten the last couple of years, just mind-blowing. What I especially appreciate is how much emphasis they put on storytelling, that it's, you know, you may be working on a data visualization. No, you have a story to tell. You're trying to put together an educational animation. You have a story to tell, and that it's just this constant pulse through in terms of communicating. And you're always walking that line, right? You don't want to obscure data. You don't want to, you don't want to manipulate it. But at the same time, while honoring the data, while honoring the, the truths of, of what you're trying to communicate, that's the challenge. You know, it's fun and, and you may fall on your face as you try and do this, uh, but then you pick yourself back up again and you try again to tell it in, a, in an engaging and thoughtful and memorable way. So the elements of a good story, it's true, it's important, and it doesn't put your audience to sleep. (laughs) Absolutely. So speaking of stories, let's go back kind of towards more the beginning of your story. How did you get interested in transfusion medicine? I am a transfusion medicine physician at this point, but really I consider myself, uh, the big part of this role is hemostasis. I consider myself in terms of the differentiation paths and transfusion some do cellular therapy, some focus on immunohematology. I was more of the blood clotting lineage with that. I hated coag in med school. <laughs> I, hate, I was terrible at it. I was terrible at it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to graduate and I'm not going to know the difference between the PT and the PTT. And that's embarrassing. And Alice Ma at, at UMC, one of the most brilliant, inspiring medical educators I've ever met. Taking her elective in my last year of med school, it completely converted me. I went from hating it and this being a castor oil rotation that I was doing just to try and keep myself from (laughs) embarrassing myself to all of a sudden something that I wanted to do with my career. And a lot of it was the power of story. So let's go back uh, to medical school. Did Did you always know you wanted to be a pathologist? Yes. Can you believe? Yes, I was, I came into med school wanting to do pathology. And I was actually very interested in forensic pathology. That that was the reason why I came in was to, to do forensic pathology. And so it was a very strange, it took me applying a couple times (laughs) where it's like, no, really, I'm I'm not going to change my story. I still want to do forensic pathology and I hope you let me in this time. Um, But yeah, no, I, I, 
uh, was the only one I think in my med school class who was interested in pathology. So what made you interested in forensics? I've been very interested in immunology uh, when I was an undergrad and uh, my, my mother had rheumatoid arthritis and I thought I was going to do research and PhD in immunology. And I was in grad school and I realized the, the discipline and the focus needed to have, have the endurance for a scientific career and follow that, that line of investigation through to the end was an endurance I did not have. I, I appreciated it and I certainly learned uh, a little, you know, a little bit about the scientific process with it, but I just knew that that wasn't a good mix for me. I liked the idea of uh, applying science to human problems. I, I always said I had a short attention span. Like I, I gravitated to crisis and actually I had been volunteer crisis intervention counselor. So I was working at a suicide prevention hotline and it was also a mental health center hotline, a rape crisis hotline, better women's hotline. So that level of dealing with someone in, in crisis and working with these very real human problems, that woke me up. Like I couldn't, that, that fully engaged me. You just can't not be there with someone who's in crisis. And so I thought that forensic pathology was going to be a, a good mix for this. But actually, I feel like transfusion medicine in pathology turned out to be a wonderful mix for this because you have this, you know, my, my background in immunology, really helpful with immunohematology and looking at red cell antibodies, but also crisis intervention, managing a bleeding patient, and you have a platelet shortage, that's crisis intervention. You know, any number of crises that, you know, we, we handle in blood banking, I feel like that background was really important. And I feel like call, it's like you have to, if you like transition, you better like call. <laughs> <laughs> and I like call, what can I say? I, I really, I always said, I feel like, you know, when you're getting woken up in the middle of the night in transfusion, you know, a lot of times it's, it's a very real difficult problem on the other end of the line. That I always found, found it enjoyable. I mean, you know, I like sleep too. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's great when it's, you know, in moderation. But that element of transfusion, I think, is also something that people who gravitate to the field, yeah, they usually have that appreciation for that part of the job. I think you highlight such an important element of working in transfusion because a lot of times there's this misperception of pathologists, right? That we go into the field because we like to sit and think and cogitate and take our time. And then out of the black box or the basement comes this answer. And I think <laughs> you've really nicely spoken to the ways in which pathologists are there in a moment of crisis and are timely and are central. And that even though we all like sleep, presumably, we're in it to help take care of patients, to be there when the patients need us, just like I'm there for frozen sections or if I'm there to do an FNA, we're there because that's why we went into the field. I mean, we, we may have the satisfaction of making the diagnosis and being able to close the loop on the story of why the patient has their symptoms. But at the end of the day, it's about being there when the patient needs you, right? Yeah. I think that's, that's a very important point to make about your particular specialty within pathology that not a lot of people think about. I think recently, probably more people have been thinking about blood banks and transfusion medicine due to the greater crisis of COVID. Yeah. The, the work that is going on throughout the country in looking at uh, convalescent plasma collection programs and the research that's going on. I know at UNM, Jay Ravel and the transfusion group there are doing this. 
they're doing incredibly important work. Thank you, Levy, to, to everyone in transfusion who's holding down the fort and who's trying to advance therapeutics in the time of coronavirus. Thank you. Absolutely. Such important work going on right now in transfusion across the country, across the world. So let's bring it back to transfusion and medical illustration. What were your goals going into the program? In terms of what informed my decision to wind up pursuing medical illustration, visual communication, and how it kind of tied into the rest of my professional life, it's summarized in one word, clarity. I, I remember going through as an early career attending and, and getting more and more experience. Just the number of times that I would catch myself communicating not with clarity uh, and being frustrated when I had a lack of clarity. And certainly everything that we were doing, obstetric hemorrhage protocols, you know, we had to have clarity. And like I had the NATO call alphabet on my computer screen, Alpha, Charlie, yeah. Delta, Echo. All that just for when we're reading unit numbers and the like, right, just right, to try right. and get absolute clarity. It, because I'd be sitting there thinking, what could I say for uh, N? And I'd be sitting there stammering going N, N, N. And for some reason, you can never, like, that's one point you can never think of a word that begins with N. Never. There you go. Never. Never. Um, but yeah, it's just looking at how are we formatting things for maximum clarity? How are we presenting our data in journals for maximum clarity? It's challenging. So let's talk a little bit about your research because I think it's, it's very applicable to these things that we've been talking about. In looking at the master's research project, I knew I wanted to do something with platelets because platelets are awesome. They're, they just are. <laughs> uh, and joking aside, at UNM, I co-chaired the hematology course with Dave Shuklatsky, who's just a fantastic medical educator. And we had put together, a, I think, a really solid course. But I'd always been thinking, I always wished I'd had time to do an animation. And I didn't even know the first thing about animating. So this was kind of a self-serving master's research project in that I wanted to create a tool that I could use to help teach. Jody Jenkinson is the program director at University of Toronto, is my supervisor for the project. And Jody very wisely early on said, you should look at the animation processing model for this. Taking a step back, it seems like animation is a great way of teaching stuff, right? If you have something that is sequential, series of events changing over time, seems like it makes sense. But is it? I mean, that's the thing that we're not too sure about. There was a recent meta-analysis that was looking at digital education for healthcare, and they found that a good number of studies that were reported had absolutely no learning theory associated with the digital tool that was developed mm. at all. And this is a problem that we have in medical education, and this is where our science and our understanding is, is falling behind. Seeing that study was really influential on me, and I said, all right, well, I don't know what theory I'm going to choose. I just know I'm going to choose a theory, and I'm going to make this animation based on that theory. You know, one of the people who developed this animation processing model, Rick Lowe, out of Perth, Australia, he's, I'm lucky enough to have him on my committee as well. He was instrumental in us going through and looking at my script and saying, no, 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 we got to, we got to redo all this. Um, at the same time, I'd also, the uh, Association of Hemophilia Clinic Directors of Canada, the HCDC, and the Foundation for Women and Girls with Blood Disorders, FWGBD, 
Both of these organizations were kind enough to let me survey them about learning objectives. This is another thing I think is important in looking at when we're putting together educational interventions, animations, or tools, or stuff like that. It kind of helps to get consensus on what should be taught. I mean, I know I'm super opinionated about playlists. I know <laughs> what I'd be teaching. And sure. I don't think everyone wants to learn about every single constituent in dense granules. Very, <laughs> know, very right? important day-to-day information. Super important for the day-to-day <laughs> life of a physician. But recognizing that, you know, our medical students are overtaxed. And ultimately, what I wanted to do with this animation is just to create just the mental model. That's a, a baseline framework introduction. This isn't teaching everything with hemostasis, not even everything with primary hemostasis but just to put it into visual context for the students so that whatever subsequent learning came, they have their mental closet set up now, right? It's like, okay, this is where I put my shirts, this is where I put my shoes, this is where I put these facts for this stuff. But making this animation according to the animation processing model is just, that's just the first animation. Really, the big research that's going to come is making a second animation based on my initial script based on my initial gut feel Mm. and then comparing learning outcomes between these two. One was just control winging it. The other one is very much ascribing to this one learning model. It takes a lot of time. Yeah, (laughs) At least me, because I'm learning it right now. But I, I think this is true of animation in general and why it's so important to do research in it because it does take time. It's an investment of either time or money. We have to be confident that it's worth that investment. Right. So just like you would have a randomized control trial for whatever intervention you wanted to give someone with high cholesterol, why not apply that same rigor to medical education where we're teaching our future physicians or the public or our colleagues? When you lay it out like that, why haven't we done this, right? But like you say, yeah, it takes time. I, and it, it does. And certainly I, I don't want to misrepresent that I'm the first one doing this kind of work. There's been some really fantastic research that's been done. I will say this is the first time that animation processing model has been applied to a biological or or medical subject matter. For me, that's what makes this exciting and why the same rigors, the same level of rigor should be applied to this because we're all getting shorter and shorter of time. Our attention is getting more and more fractionated. We can't afford not to take educational psychology, a scientific approach to medical education. Absolutely, because it's how we're going to train generations of future physicians. And like you say, with less time, we want to make sure it's really impactful, it's really effective, and we're using evidence-based, well, an evidence-based. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what your research shows. And honestly, I I really am looking forward to seeing some cartoons of platelets, hopefully. There, uh, I have some, I have some test shots, and I'm actually going to be putting those up on uh, my website very shortly. Looking forward to seeing them. So do you think there's elements of your pathology and medical training that have helped you be a better medical illustrator or vice versa? Hmm. Interesting. One thing that has, has impressed me with the field of medical illustration, and I appreciate much more now, is just how thoroughly researched a medical illustration is. An anatomic, scientific, molecular, whatever. Certainly it was something that was drilled into the students at our program, which is every single one of these illustrations, where's your reference list? And before you start working on your drafts, your iterations, you have to have your research down. So certainly as an academic pathologist, I felt like 
I was coming in with big advantage. Uh, so yeah, I think it's how, how much research goes into it. And shocking, it's, it's not just pull up one atlas, an atomic atlas as reference. It's like, no, there's three and you have to cross-reference. That was the other thing that I think for, for myself was very eye-opening is the, the amount of subtle variations that are there in anatomic atlases. And just recognizing that to, to really understand the 3D relationships of this, you needed multiple atlases and some CT and MR scans. Yeah, so I think that for, for me, like coming into the program is certainly the research. And obviously, you know, having an MD and, and that level of, of education coming in was a real boom because these students take anatomy and they work in a cadaver lab, very similar to medical students. They do neuroanatomy. They get to learn all that neuro. Oh my. I got to, I got to take neuroanatomy tests again. Oh. That was fun. Delightful. I love it. So- as, as an aside, I always love neuroanatomy. I took a neuroanatomy class as an undergrad and I just, oh, I loved all the pathways and nuclei and nerves and gosh. That's probably the eye-opening thing is coming back to this 20 years down the road and being, and being like the feeling and sympathy for our medical students. Mm. Uh, because guess who was going through trying to figure out the best quick, quick learn, quick refresher? Mm-hmm. A shout out to um, Duke though. They have a wonderful Coursera course on medical neuroanatomy that I used. But yeah, I think on the flip side, what uh, medical illustration has, has done in informing me is getting me to recognize, just talking about anatomy, I did not understand anatomy until I had to draw it, period. And I did, gosh, as a resident, 150 autopsies. But until you have to draw it, there's just such a, a different level after having cognitively processed and really work through the visual problem solving of where does this duct exactly cross over this structure? Where exactly does this branch? And it's been something that more and more med, school, med schools around the country, even residency programs, surgical residency programs, are now teaching art and medicine because they're recognizing that it has twofold benefits. One, you really learn it. I will, I will say one of my early assignments in the program was doing this section of the knee at an angle that is not canonical you know it's not one that is a typical view and so that shift in perspective and that extending what is a typical knee mri view and seeing some of those other that was that was exceptionally challenging and i had to go through and really work to you know to to wrestle with with that anatomy and so i can now see what the potential benefits would be one of the things that was an, a new element in the cadaver labs that the medical illustration students did is that we would spend half our time dissecting and then half our time drawing so i have an entire sketchbook of just coming in and just doing the sketches and and such it's difficult to think about how because time is so precious in our curriculum how it could be fit in but it's intriguing to, to think about this as a worthwhile educational technique. Yeah, I think that the importance of art in medicine goes beyond just learning as well too, right? Because having those more humanistic elements of our practice and appreciating, right? There's always that saying that, you know, our medicine is art as much as it is science and allowing those of us who are physicians to embrace that more creative, perhaps less traditionally hard science aspect of our brains and our talents can actually contribute to us being better physicians, whether we're learning for our own benefit or trying to become better at visual communication so that we can educate others. So 
Right. In looking at physicians, even residents and students that I've seen that have maintained art practice and, as, and integrated it into their lives, Catherine Coe, her handle on Instagram, Doc Ambidexter, uh, is a neurosurgeon, and she actually had taken time to pursue an MFA. And she does amazing, I mean, her, her paintings are just gorgeous, right? I mean, just stunning. But at the same time, she'll, she'll cartoon as well. She'll cartoon about her experience. Clearly, she absolutely adores neuroanatomy, neurosurgery. She loves what she does. And, and all this is of a piece. That was a real inspiration for me in seeing people that did that. And I felt like that was the thing that up till a few years ago, I have to say I was disappointed in myself because I came from this background in the arts. I was a cellist. I was a visual artist. I had done all these things. And, you know, for the most part, they were taking a backseat. They took a hard backseat when I became uh, an attending and I kept trying to poke out. But it was something that I'm so grateful for at this point. I do feel like the two sides of my brain are getting a little bit more equal playtime right now. And it's tough because when you don't practice that creativity, like some of these some of these other physicians who have, have been so disciplined in being able to maintain it, it's tough. It's like persuading a scared cat out from under the bed. Come on, <laughs> come on out, come on out. Like, it's okay. I know it, you said, yeah, it couldn't be creative for the longest time. It's all right, you could come out and do it. And so without that practice, um, there would be a lot of times where I'd just be staring at the canvas. I'd be staring at the screen going, what the hell am I going to do? Yeah. I think that's so important. The role of seeing that you can be a very dedicated, very talented physician, but also have interests outside of medicine. I think that's, that's what I think is so wonderful. I mean, there's a lot of things obviously about social media and the world that we live in that are negative, but one of the very positive things that I really enjoy is seeing how many other physicians out there are artistically inclined, are making beautiful paintings, are making woodworking, are making, you know, really art and creative endeavors. And I think that seeing role models like yourself, like Doc Ambidexter, who are successful at being able to do things outside of medicine and for that to be okay and valid and something that is worthy of your time is really, really important because I think we do our trainees and medical students and even very young people who might be interested in medicine, we do them a disservice if we model to them that the only good physician is the one who is on 24-7, only thinks about medicine, and puts medicine before everything else in their life. Obviously, we put patients first. They are a priority. But it is okay to be a rounded individual, and it is okay to be creative. And I think that having role models is so important for the next generation. And I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you. I agree. And with the role models I've seen in this aspect, who've been able to have, uh, have that balance, it's been great to see how keeping one saw sharp keeps both saws sharp. And, and, you know, some of the most busy clinician, academic, you know, multi-hat individual at the same time that they're still stoking their fires with creativity. And that taps into the humanity that brought us all here in the first place. So one, one thing I wanted to talk about in speaking about the importance of pursuing your dreams is you've won several awards recently related to your endeavors in medical illustration. Tell us about those. Well, I was incredibly lucky. You know, I applied to University of Toronto and I won, I was, I was awarded the Nancy Joy Entrance Award. They 
like my portfolio and application. So that was a wonderful honor. The Salius Trust is a charitable organization that works in association with the Association of Medical Illustrators, AMI.org. And the Vesalius Trust is an important source of funding for uh, student scholarships. This is awarded to support their research for all the graduate programs, these four graduate programs throughout North America. The students engage in research-based development of a master's project. And the Vesalius Trust gives awards for research grants, the ones that they thought that had most robust proposals. For that, that I had won the Joyce McGill Scholarship for my work on my master's project. They also award the Inez Demonet Scholarship, which is for graduating student they feel like is going to make the most meaningful contributions to the field. And I was humbled to receive that award too. It's an honor, but it's also it's a call to action too. I mean, looking at how much information, just looking at the pandemic, how much information has come to us through the work of medical and scientific illustrators, the data visualizations that we've been hungrily consuming, the Hopkins website. I saw a hilarious joke that talked about, it showed a exponential graph and it was saying the number of exponential graphs that I've been seeing during my time yeah. in yeah. quarantine. <laughs> yeah. So all these things and recognizing that our ability to wrap our head around this pandemic has been thanks to the visualizations, even the idea of flattening the curve, that animation where it showed that big peak and then it flattened, right. that was huge. And so this is where it is important to be looking at uh, the future, just like with our physicians. I mean, we all learned from visualizations. We all learned from the work from uh, medical illustrators. So it's important to be looking to that profession and thinking about the next generation with them as much as it is for, for our medical profession. And it's also an opportunity, I think, to work on trying to see what we can do to help bring some of these communication tools to directly to physicians. Certainly, this is not going to, there will always be need for medical and scientific illustrators, but to be better communicators, I think that's something we can all achieve. Absolutely. And it's so important, right? You know, going back to that, you can tell such a powerful story with visuals, but with great power comes great responsibility, right? Yeah. Particularly at this time in history. The decisions that are being made based on what's been visualized for us, I think underscores the importance of recognizing that, so well said, with great power, great responsibility, anyone can pick up some of these programs, but are you doing it accurately? Are you doing it with an eye towards clarity? Are you all these things? And, and for that reason, you know, this is, this is where I feel like our, our communities, our mutually supportive communities, uh, physician scientists and the visualizers that help them communicate is more important than ever. Yeah, it's going to be more online. It's going to be more digital. And, and how are we going to, how are we going to do this? Don't know. Let's find out. Let's find out <laughs> together. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so, so very much, Dr. Lockhart, for coming and speaking with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Dr. Zhang, it's always an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me on. And if you would like to see Dr. Lockhart's beautiful, amazing medical illustration work, and I highly recommend that you do, you are missing out otherwise, please be sure to visit her website, Evelyn Lockhart, that's E-V-E-L-Y-N-L-O-C-K-H-A-R-T.com to take a look.
This has been PathPod Beyond the Scope. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Thank you all very much for listening. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast.